Welcome to the Talk of Sykeston podcast. I'm Glenn Cantrell. Today, we are going to share with you our exclusive interview with Chris Sullivan. Now, if you've been listening to the radio program uh, over the past few weekends, uh, you know that we ran this interview on the radio, but it was the cut-up version. Uh, Unfortunately, because of time constraints, we were unable to give you everything on the radio side. And that's the great thing about the podcast. We can basically do whatever we want. And so I am giving you the entire interview uncut so you can hear every word that Chris has to say about this tragic event that took place to his daughter and in his family, how it's affected them, their thoughts about the young woman and the case that is happening right now. So let's get down to it. My talk with Chris Sullivan. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you, sir. Um, So I've been thinking about uh, when we first met, uh, I think uh, Montana was on my softball team. Yeah, uh, the short little blonde-headed girl with the freckles and smile, toughest nails, and uh, loved having her on the team. She was such uh, a joy to have around. Cracked me up, and <laughs> I, I remember once I was thinking back once that we had a softball game, and I can't remember exactly what happened, but I think she took a line drive, like to her to her arm or something. And man, you know, when you coach enough softball teams, you know there's going to be tears. And she comes off, and I'm like, you know. Hey, are you okay? And whatever. He's like, yeah, fine, fine. You know, like she's, she was just so tough and uh, love that girl. And I really appreciate you coming on the show and talking about just about everything that, that happened and, and kind of what's going on now. Um, but for those who, who don't know or haven't heard the story, kind of let's go back to December and okay. talk about, you know, that day. I think it was December 27th. Yeah, December 27th. Like what, what happened that particular day? So, um, I guess earlier that day, somewhere around 2.30, uh, Montana FaceTimed me, uh, and she was in a car. There was another individual in the car with her. I just I couldn't see the person. Um, and she was, she'd been there to see her sister. She'd left school, um, and she was actually thinking about going to a different school out in Oklahoma City. But on that day, um, she was in her car. She FaceTimed me, um, was just talking you know i said well call me later on because she was getting ready to go in someplace and uh obviously the the phone call uh never came from her that night um uh, i guess somewhere around eleven thirty, i had a missed phone call and it was from montana's phone uh, i called the number back and another female answered the phone uh, and at that point, she said, is this Montana's dad? I said, yes. And she said, well, I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to call you, and hung the phone up. And that was pretty much the gist of me knowing anything that night. Hmm. Uh, I didn't I didn't find out until the following morning uh, at 6 a.m. when the uh, detective called me from Oklahoma, from the city there. So um, the shooting happened, though, uh, early had, that night, right? Yeah, it happened um, – Sometime between nine thirty and ten fifteen, roughly, uh, they believe uh, Montana was pronounced uh, deceased uh, at, at a little bit after ten fifteen on that Friday night. So a little over six hours later, yes. about eight hours, you you get the phone call. Um, I mean, I listen. Um, we've known each other for a while, and, we, and, and our, our kids and. And I just can't imagine getting that phone call. Like, at, at first, did you even think it was real? Maybe it was just a joke or a hoax or something like that, you know? You know, 
at first it was I knew it was for real. I knew based on the the tone of the of the lady on the other phone on the other end. Um I had it on speakerphone and my wife was standing there. Um and I just kind of collapsed a little bit. Um and then was able to gather myself and take the phone call. Um, there were a lot of details that, that she couldn't share with me. Um, she told me that uh, Montana had sustained an injury um, and that she did not survive her, her injury. Um, so at that point, you don't even know. It could have been an accident. You don't know anything. Right. I At that point, I had no idea of what it was. And so I said, can you tell me what happened? And she said, uh, she said, your daughter was shot and killed. Um, she said that uh, basically, according to the medical staff, um, it was a catastrophic injury. Um, even though she arrived at the hospital still breathing, um, there was no, basically there was no brain function. There was no anything. It, it was, uh, according to the doctor that, that treated Montana, um, it wouldn't have mattered if it would have happened in their parking lot. Uh, she wouldn't have survived um, the, 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 because of where the injury was located at. It was just that bad. Yeah, it, it was um, very close range. I mean, it was, you know, uh, less than five feet. Uh, so it was a small caliber handgun. Um, you know, it was just kind of one of those deals. You know, but when you get that call, you're not. I mean, nobody's prepared for that. I, yeah. I, I think, you know, I told my wife not too long ago. I said that I think the only person or the only families that are prepared for that, semi-prepared, are those that have a son or a daughter that's in the military that's serving overseas. That that's inherently that they know that that's possible. Yeah, because you know that that call can come at any time. Right, right. For me, it was not something that I even had any. I mean, I just never even thought about it. It was not even something I, I thought would ever happen. I'll never get that phone call. I'll never have to worry about it because my kid's a good kid, not going to do yeah. anything bad, that, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, you know, it was later on where, where we got the details of what actually took place. Um, still, we we were still uh, not allowed to know a lot um, because it was an ongoing investigation. So even though uh, they had told us, the the base of what had happened, they had not gone into detail as to what had happened. How frustrating is that when you get that phone call and they can't tell you everything? Because I, I, I can only assume that the, that you really are just wanting to know. Yeah. It, I mean, it was it was frustrating. The, you know, it, it kind of makes you numb in a sense. Um, there's little about that day that I truly remember as far as... I know that, you know, there was tons of people at our house, um, and um, the majority of the conversations were not with me, um, just based on where I was at mentally at that point. Um, you know, there was just, there was a lot going on, and it, and it was frustrating because I'm sitting there trying to think in my head, you know, one, I don't know who done it. Um the the only thing that you know when you get that call and it's that kind of injury you know the the questions that were asked was like did she have any enemies did she uh do you know of any 
people that she ran with that were questionable. I mean, you're talking about a 20-year-old girl. Um, I'm sure she knew people. I'm sure she had friends that weren't, you know, as morally driven as most. Um, But I couldn't think of one person. Not one person who would want to hurt my daughter. I mean, I just couldn't. Especially in Oklahoma City, because she's there visiting. Yeah, and I see, and that's the thing. Like, so her, she has two older siblings, um, and those those are not my children. Um, and the middle one, Elizabeth, is the one that lives in Oklahoma City. And her and Montana are about five years or six years apart, so they're they're pretty close in age. Um, and Montana would go out there quite frequently, even when she was in high school. She would go. And see Elizabeth. So she had made friends out there. Um, obviously, they're not friend, people that we know because mm. we never go out there with her. Um, but uh, and, and, and the individual that did it, it turned out that that was somebody that she knew. And so she had been friends with them. Um, we don't know to the extent of how long. We have a rough idea of what they've told us, but it, it could have been a longer period of time or even shorter. We're not really sure as to exactly how long they knew each other. So what do you know at this point of what transpired in that car that night? So uh, so what we do know is is that there were five individuals in the car. Uh, there were uh, there was a young man driving, uh, the young lady who ultimately was the shooter was in the front passenger seat. Um, there was one young man in the back seat directly behind the passenger or behind the driver. Montana was sitting in the middle of her own car because it took place in Montana's car. Um, and then there was another young girl sitting directly to Montana's right. Um, the only reason Montana was in the even in the back seat was because the girl, the young girl in the back seat, was a little bit nervous about Grace. Uh, Grace Huff is the girl that that took my daughter's life, and she was a little bit nervous. Um, and she had indicated that to the detectives that that was why Montana was sitting in the back seat. Um, we know that they um, they had drove to somewhere around Enid, Oklahoma, which is just a, it's another it'd be like driving from here to Cape, roughly, I believe. Um, and they do believe that Grace had went. Um, to talk to somebody about some kind of drug or something or another. That's that's what they do believe took place. Um, it happened on the way back. Um, on the way back, they're driving. Uh, Grace pulls out a thirty-two caliber handgun. Um, the young man who's sitting beside Montana tells her to put it up. You know, quit playing with the gun. Uh, Grace totally ignores him. She then states she's going to shoot the gun. So she, he tells her not to because they're on a, they're on a four lane interstate, which which is like you know like what we have out here on fifty five. So yeah. it's made exactly the same way, uh, except they're they're in town. It's a you know because it's a fairly large area, kind of uh, like a Main Street or Malone. Yeah, yeah. So that that's exactly what it would be like. And so um, he tells her not to do that because he says you know you don't know where that bullet's going. Uh, she ignores that. Uh, she rolls down the window, fires the gun two times out the window, uh, immediately turns her body from the front seat, um, sets the gun on top of the seat, aims the gun at Montana, and pulls the trigger. Hmm. And that's that's what we uh, that's what we what we had found out later on. Um, 
So why, I guess my question then to the, the Grace, the young, no, not, not Grace, but to the young girl in the back seat mm-hmm. who had some kind of inkling that she should be afraid of Grace. Like, uh-huh. What was it that Grace was doing, saying, that gave off this presence that she should be afraid? So apparently earlier that day, um, they were at Grace's apartment. Um, and Grace either had a... Uh, they they know that she had a a pellet gun that re, that looked like a, uh, a a real handgun, and apparently she had a rifle that looked very real, um, and she had pointed that rifle at that young girl earlier that day, and that's where the girl kind of got nervous. That's where it started at. Uh, apparently, the conversation uh, the the young lady asked Grace not to do that that it scared her. Grace apologized, said I'm sorry. And that was it. Um, there was, I mean, there was no arguments. I mean, there was nothing. There was no uh, arguments between Montana and Grace. Uh, you know, everybody said, hey, look, we were having a good time. We were just driving around. Um, you know, it, it was the stuff that that I found out later that really, one, I found out how my daughter's life was taken. And that's hard enough to handle. Uh, and then finding out the actual details of it in the preliminary hearing, where you have a young man who's up there testifying, and you know you have a eighteen, nineteen year old boy who's reliving the worst thing he's ever seen in his life, and and to see the sh- the the grief and the hurt on his face, um, it, it it really it really hurt. Uh, us on that that he had to go through that and 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 also being you know keep in mind I had been I had met Grace at one of the hearings before at the at the bond hearing um, but that was when the courts were completely shut down um, because my daughter was murdered I had a constitutional right to be in there so they did let me in there when the bond hearing came up um, and at that point uh, Grace was probably less than ten feet from me. But I didn't see what I thought I was going to see, honestly. What were you expecting? I was expecting to see a just stone-faced, I killed your daughter, not concerned about it. So what did you see? I saw a young lady who was crying, and um, she appeared to be totally remorseful of what happened. Um, I made sure that, you know, I, I didn't wear my mask. I took my mask off because I wanted to make sure she saw my face. Um, and there were things in the bond hearing that absolutely just confused me as to, uh, you know, we knew that the first-degree murder charge had been amended to second-degree murder uh, in the commission of a felony, second-degree murder with a depraved mind, and first-degree manslaughter. So why the reduction in charges? So because um, it wasn't the prosecutor; it was the judge that yes. reduced the charges. Yes. So um, basically, at some point, the the prosecutor and the two attorneys from Montana um, get together. They're like, "Hey, I, I in Oklahoma things are done a little bit different in their court system." So they actually spoke with the judge prior to the actual bond hearing. Um, and I they they t- I forget what they what they told me it was called but anyhow um, 
they can get kind of an idea on what the judge is going to do. So they, I guess, in with the first charge um, of the first degree murder, the judge basically said, "You have five individuals in a car. There's no arguments during the day. There's no altercation days before." Um, we he just did not feel like it was a pre a premeditated or in the heat of the moment type deal but unless grace tells them that which she's not going to do hmm. um you know they they have to go by what the law says so they reduced the charge from first degree murder to the other three charges um but you know I I uh, a, a buddy of mine took me there because they they obviously didn't want me to go by myself, but um, he wasn't allowed in there. And when we, when I came out, you know, I was angry about a couple of things. I mean, this is a girl who comes from a very wealthy family. Um, that was stated by her attorney. Um, they gave her a fifty thousand dollar cash assurities bond, which basically just means that her family had to pay five thousand dollars. They pay ten percent of whatever it is. Um, but it's you know it's a cash assurities bond, so somebody had to sign off on it, saying you know if she runs, I'm going to pay the fifty thousand um, dollars. But she was sent to a a very high end uh, rehabilitation for for drugs and um, depression. Apparently, she was so she had relapsed on Xanaxes, I believe, is what they said, and uh, she was supposed to be in this facility until October. Um, she spent less than 90 days there. Um, we, we, you know, the attorneys called and said, hey, that rehab place is cutting this girl loose. She doesn't need it as bad as what her attorney let on. Uh, they put her in a sober living house. She's monitored with an ankle bracelet that, you know, but outside of that, you know, she's got, you know, she's got free reign to do some things. So let's back up a second because I... Before we got into all of this, you, you you said something about what you were expecting to see, and and then what you saw. Yep. How does that does that change how you feel about her at all? It did that day. And in, in what way did it change you? Um. Yeah, I told Brent Barber who took me. I, I came out and I said, "Man, I'm so confused. I'm so confused." And he said, "Because she got bond." I said, "No, I'm, I'm mad about that." I'm confused because the anger and the hatred that I thought that I was going to have for this girl, I didn't have. Um, you know, Montana had a forgiving heart to a fault. I mean, she would forgive people. She just that's just the kind of kid she was. And and I thought that that was why I felt that way. You know, um, and I was confused. I, I cried for a long period of the of the drive home and. You know, because you want to hate her. I did. I, I, I. But you just can't. I, I couldn't at the time. Um, my feelings changed um, once we got into uh, the preliminary hearing, um, and that's when her family was there, because they were not allowed to be there in the bond hearing. Just, just I was the only one allowed in the court. So my feelings towards her changed that day. So you've been kind of on a roller coaster in, in, in a lot of different aspects. I mean, the yeah. roller coaster ride of emotions because 
your daughter is no longer with us, the roller coaster of what's happening with the case, the roller coaster of what's, you know, your feelings toward this girl. Mm-hmm. I mean, your emotions got to be just all over the place. Yeah, I mean, and they were, and they still are. I mean, you know, uh, I don't think me and God's come to grips or terms yet. Um, you know, I mean, and, and that's something that I'll, I'll have to work out. But the the emotional part of it is uh, never-ending. Um, you know, when you look at the impact that it's had on my family, you know, when, you know, because Montana has a 10-year-old sibling and then 5-year-old twins siblings. And and when you have three children of that age in counseling, it's not something that any parent wants to, to have to go through. Because we do forget about that part. You know, yes. we, we think about, you know, the father, the mother, uh, the stepmother, whatever. Mm-hmm. There's kids involved too yes. who are close to their sister, and you know we don't we don't think about how it affects them. Yeah, and it and it's really impacted even probably more so than the twins. Because um, she's older, you think? Yeah, yeah, because he's ten and he spent. I mean, he's you know obviously he spent a lot of time with Montana. Yeah. Um, you know, Montana was a hunter and a fisherman and a basketball player, and she was an athlete, and Avon did all that stuff with her, and. And when all of a sudden you take that away, that's hard for for anybody to handle, let alone a 10-year-old young boy that you've got to sit on the couch and say, hey, look, um, this is what happened. Um, we we still have not told Avon uh, and will not tell Avon uh, the details of it. Uh, we just told him, you know, basically it was an accident, it, something that shouldn't have happened that did. Um, he knows very little other than... His sister's not here. He's gonna, I mean, I, I assume at some point when he's older, you might. Yeah, when he gets when he's voice. when he's older, we will. Um, and 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 hopefully, you know, at that point in time, he'll be able to handle it. It's not, uh, you, you know, I, and that's you know, you get a lot of advice from people. Um, but the one thing that I do know when it comes to that, unless you're a parent of a murdered child. There's really not any advice that you can get that that really is is helpful in a sense because, you know, it, it wasn't like it was a car wreck. It wasn't, you know, I mean, this was something where somebody purposely took your child away from you. Hmm. You know, so. I, I, I tell people um, times, sometimes about being a pastor, and uh, I tell them the toughest, the two, the two things that are, well, I should say tough, and, and one that I dislike. I dislike weddings <laughs> right. because I feel like we're, you know, uh, I mean, I love marrying people. It's the whole fairy tale thing because the next day the fairy tale's over. You know what I mean? Right. And, yeah. And the, the toughest thing though is is funeral. It's 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 trying to be there for a family because there are absolutely no words that I could say to someone to take the pain and the hurt away. Right. I mean, we, we try, hey, if there's anything you need, you know, we try to be there. Sure. But, you know, we don't know what you're going through. We don't know, you know, all the things that are going through in your mind. It's just really difficult, you know, to try to be a comfort to people when they're going through such a painful thing. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, um, you know, for us, I don't know if you want to call it closure. I don't, I, however you want to word it. But you've still got this, you know, trial that's lingering. You've still got to deal with this. So you're trying to deal with the fact that you no longer have your daughter, uh, who you spent the majority of your life fighting for. Um, 
And then you're trying to deal with the fact that uh, I know there's more trips out to Oklahoma. I know there's more uh, time in a courtroom. I know there's more um, times that I'm going to see this young lady. Um, You know, we said from the very beginning that we did not want the death penalty for the for the young lady, regardless if they would have said, hey, she did it on purpose, we know this, we would have still asked for that not to be the case. So is there a part of you then that wants to forgive her as if yeah. Montana would? Yeah, there's a part of me that wants to. I, I just I, I just haven't been able to do that. Um, and it's, you know, um, it, it's kind of one of those deals where I think that for me had – um, I I know there's no I know I'm not allowed to have communication with the young lady, um, but you know if I felt like there was true remorse, um, I think I could deal with it better than what I am, but but based on what we saw at the preliminary hearing. Uh, we we just don't believe that's the case. Based on what uh, the detectives told us took place while she was, uh, in while she was in jail, uh, the conversations that she had with her parents, it's it's, it's hard to to uh, believe that the girl has any remorse. So in the bond hearing, you maybe felt like that that was happening, but you find out some things later on that correct that i guess yeah yeah and, and then so um i mean now it's more about her her remorse isn't over what she's done but i guess what's going to happen for her yeah i think i think because of the fact that you know we still and in 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 the beginning the detectives believed that that grace did do it on purpose they they believed that it was a jealousy deal um and they still believe that um they just were absolutely unable to prove it, um, and, and I believe that it was. Um, you know, it's just such a hard—you want to forgive her. You want to not hold on to the hatred and the anger, but it's just, you know, when when you find out— like I said, we knew very little going into, into uh, the preliminary hearing, uh, and, and, and they— they prepared me for that, you know, because at that point, um, that's when things really begin to come yeah, out, all the details yeah, and that sort yeah. of thing. And that's when we found out um, all about all the lies and stuff that had been told. Uh, Grace had uh, blamed it on one of the individuals in the car, said one of the boys did it. Um, Didn't originally she claim that it actually happened somewhere else? Yes. Yeah, so, so, so basically, what happened was after she, after she. Um, shot Montana, uh, the young man who was beside Montana, who was sitting in the back seat, said, we have to get her to the hospital. He knew. He's, he was holding her head, telling her it was going to be okay. He was trying to get there. Um, but Grace still had the gun in her hand. Um, and so she basically made the, the guy, the boy who was driving, pull over. And they pulled over in behind a container store. Um, and then that's where everybody exited the vehicle and left Montana in the back seat. And of course, Montana's basically bleeding to death in the back seat um, because she's still alive and because it's a head wound. Um, and the young man says, "We we got to get her to the hospital." Grace says, "No, we got to take her to the 
to my apartment and tell them that we found her there, that she committed suicide. And that's what she, once the boy refused to do that, and he got Montana into the front seat, and he made Grace tell him how to get to the hospital. And at that point, um, that is at the hospital is where Grace got caught. The other, the other four fled. They fled uh, as soon as they got there, and the nurses came out to get Montana out. The other four people that were in the car, they left. They left the car there, but uh, the young boy who was trying to save Montana's life took the gun with him. Hmm. Um, and so we found that out. Uh, we did know that uh, before the preliminary hearing, but, but as far as like um, because in the, the news and everything said that they immediately drove to the hospital to get medical attention, and that's not what happened. They didn't. Uh, they left her in the back seat of the car for uh, – the way he described it, he said it was probably, uh, you know, five to ten minutes while they were out there arguing because she still has the gun. And, and, and the other two people are, are pretty scared. And, and I'm sure the young man who was trying to save Montana was too. And, and we commend him on the fact that he, he possibly took his own life uh, and put his own life in jeopardy by making them get back in the car. He made them put Montana up front with him, and he basically just rested her head on his lap as he as he drove to the hospital, holding her holding her head. I was going to ask because within that, you know, you think about those those other three. You know, you have mm-hmm. Grace who, who pulled the trigger, and then the, then the other, well, I guess, two other two, right? No, three. You know, how do you feel about them, you know, pulling over, spending that five to ten minutes arguing about what to do next and then fleeing? I mean, I think you kind of said, you know, you know they're scared, but at the same time, did they do everything they could have done for Montana from your point of view as a father? Yeah. Yeah, they did. I, You know, you, you have to understand. I mean, that's that's such a – one, nobody knew it was going to happen, and, you know – you you still have the shooter who has the gun in their hand and and they're young. I mean they're they're young. Um I believe, truly believe, that they did everything that they could. Um I have no ill will about them leaving the scene fleeing. I don't. Um I, I really don't. I mean I, I can't s- I mean that's something I've never experienced. I, I don't know that I would have stayed there. Especially if I wasn't the one that done it, you know, I don't know that I would have stayed there. Um, so we 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 had no hard feelings towards them, um, it, you know. Um, we honestly, at the preliminary hearing, what we were concerned about was the young man who had to testify. Um, we asked if we could pay for us to have counseling, to have anything. You know, we would do whatever we had to do, work extra hours to make sure that he got what he needed. Because um, you, you guys recognize that he needs yeah, something? Yeah, he's, he's I, I don't know, you know, how I would have mentally handled that at his age to see something like that happen. Um, and so, but we were told that the state provides that. Uh, for for these the the witnesses who are involved in, in you know experience something like that who are and, somewhat victims themselves yes and they are and and you know and then and we we can't have contact with him you know because he's a witness for the state um, you know obviously we can't have any contact with him until after this is over with 
Um, once it's completely done, um, we we plan on going back out to Oklahoma um, and visiting with the young man ourselves. So let's go back to Grace for a moment. Uh, you mentioned something that was mentioned in the bond hearing, um, the facility that she went to, the fact that she didn't have to spend so much time. I mean, is there a part of you that kind of feels like maybe some status is allowing her to, I don't want to use the word to, to get off uh, the charges, but to, a lot of leniency going her way because of that? Yeah, so you, so that was one of the other things we were concerned about. Um, we knew one of her grandparents was an attorney uh, in the in the city in Oklahoma City, and had been for about twenty five years. We just didn't at the time know whether it was the the grandfather or the grandmother. Turns out it was the grandmother. Um, so we we know from things um, we know how well they've been able to protect Grace. Uh, Grace has a younger brother. You have to keep in mind they 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 went to both of the kids went to a private school. Uh, in Nickel Hills, um, and you know you're talking about almost a twenty-eight thousand dollar year school, and there's two kids. Uh, and apparently, Grace was a very uh, good field hockey player. She got a scholarship to Ryder University. Um, we found out that she was dismissed from school um, because of selling Xanaxes and using and using that pill. Um, they, on the other hand, said it was a, uh, you know, it was an injury, and that's why. Yeah. Um, but no, it's been a concern from the very beginning, which is why we had originally asked for a change of venue, which we were we were denied. Um, then I I asked for the judge who was hearing the case to recuse himself from hearing the trial because he he this is the same uh, the same judge who lowered the bond would be the same judge who would preside over the trial. Um, now, at the preliminary hearing, that's what they call a special magistrate, and he determines what charges remain and what charges don't, um, and who and if they're bound over for trial. Um, but we ask for him to recuse himself from this because there's there's probably no doubt that at some point the grandmother has appeared in front of this judge, and probably countless times in front of him. So. So they would know each other. Now, you know, they may not go out and have coffee, but they would know each other. Yeah. Um, he refused to recuse himself from from hearing the uh, from hearing the trial. So, so there's frustration on so many different levels over, yeah. and it's. And I can't imagine too the difficulty of it being in Oklahoma City. Yeah, where you can't just drive across town or right. the county and go talk to someone. Right. It's a. Uh, it's you know we had made several phone calls to David Prater, who is the the head. Uh, prosecuting attorney for Oklahoma City for the Oklahoma County, um, and received no phone calls back. It wasn't until I did the two interviews with the two biggest news cha- uh, stations there in Oklahoma City that I received a phone call back. So at that point, you know, which which I told him, you know, we just didn't feel like and don't feel like at this point that Montana will get the justice that she deserves. Um, you know, I mean, when you send somebody to a rehab facility, I'm not saying that those facilities have to be, you know, like being behind bars. But but when you can go and ride horses and canoe and fish and do yoga and you, you that almost to, feels like a vacation. Yes, and rehab. yeah. 
And, and I was hurt by that, you know, by her being able to go to such a, a place where, you know, I'm not so sure I wouldn't want to go to for, you know, just to take a break. And then so, now she's out right now. She is, yeah. So she is currently in a uh, a sober living facility, which is owned by the same uh, rehab facility. Um, her attorney, uh, he's very expensive, but he's he's pretty smart. He knew not to send her back to Oklahoma City. So she's not actually in the city. She's two and a half hours away from there. Um, but, you know, he didn't want her to go back to the city because he knew. You know, there's a big chance that she messes up if she goes back home. Um, and so he 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 uh, approached the judge, and we knew that. I got a phone call about a month ago, a little over a month ago now, um, that said, hey, you know, it was Montana's attorneys, and they said, look, he's petitioned the judge. This is what's going to happen. Um, but everybody that I have talked to about the judge says that what he did in the bond hearing is not unheard of. But that he is – he was a former police officer for several years before he became a judge um, and that he takes these things very serious. And and uh, we can only hope that that's the case. So is it, is it the defense um, – are they saying that because she was mentally unstable, because she was on drugs, that gives a reason why it's not – First degree and it should be second degree. Is that kind of the thought process behind that? Well, yeah, their their whole thing is is that uh, they're saying it shouldn't even be second degree. They 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 were pushing for first degree manslaughter. Um, they they didn't believe that in the preliminary hearing um, that they were going to be held to anything other than that. Um, and so when they were, um, you could see a little bit of deflation come out of out of her uh attorney um but the way um the way her and her family it, it just the arrogance was unimaginable i and that's the that's why my whole opinion and feelings toward the girl has changed not one tear not anything and she's watching this young man who's basically saying i watched you kill and that's his exact words I watched you murder Montana Sullivan. I watched you do that. Not, not nothing came out of her. Nothing. No reaction. At all. No reaction. Nothing. Sit there and nothing. I mean, do you think because of how she's loved, grown up, her family, and so on, that she just feels like she's getting out of it? Yeah, I think she believes that um, because there is an, an option for probation. Th- this is a girl who does not have. Any violent crimes, any anything like that, um, and so probation is something that is an option. Um, so no jail, an option is no jail time, yeah. all probation. Yeah, that is one of the things that could happen. Um, and unfortunately, in the state of Oklahoma, um, whatever the judge decides, that's what it is. We we don't have the the uh, ability to appeal anything. Um, there is one option that they believe. The girl may take, and that's what they call blind pleading, um, because the 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 special magistrate held her over for trial on the other charges. Um, this is where negotiations kind of start, according to Montana's attorneys. Um, you know, they're gonna try to work something out, but 
we can't they they can't stop her from blind playing. So basically, she can go in front of the judge and say, "Hey, I'm guilty of what they've charged me with, um, but I want you to sentence me, and not a jury." Because I think, based on how well the young man testified, uh, according to what we were told after it was all over with, um, and the fact that this that, that her attorney could not shake him from anything that he had said, um, I think that that caused problems for them at that point. So I know that you said, you know, no death penalty, but mm-hmm. I don't know how else to put this, but what is satisfactory for you? What, what, what to you is justice for Montana? So what, what we wanted was we wanted the maximum sentence that, that these all three of these carry uh, is 45 years. Um, we, I said, you know, at 45 years, she'd be eligible for parole at 39 years and three months. Um, she turned 22 while she was in in custody. Um, so that's going to put her a little bit up there in age, but not to the point to where she would not still be able to experience certain things. Um, we know that the likelihood is that she's not going to get 45 years. Even if she goes to prison, um, we're looking somewhere, I think, in the range of, I mean, it could be, Four years, it could be 10 years, you know. For us, obviously, we wanted the maximum amount of time that she could get. Um, and and I think that's one reason why they don't want to go in front of a jury, because a jury can suggest in Oklahoma, we believe this is heinous enough that this warrants longer sentence, um, whereas in Missouri, you cannot do that. You have to, whatever the maximum is, that's what it is. That makes you a little nervous that it's not a jury trial, right? Yeah, and, and you know, on both ways. It makes us nervous that they will have one. It makes us nervous that they won't um, because you're talking about a city where I think they told me that they prosecute anywhere from ten to 25,000 felony cases per year. Hmm. Um, I think they average somewhere around 15 to 18 murders a month. I think is what they said. Um, and they're with the way society has trended in the last few months. And well, since the pandemic came, um, the juries that they've had, you know, have been a little squirrely. They uh, have tended to not be as aggressive as they normally would be. Um, the thing for us is I fought for Montana her entire life. I fought to get custody of Montana. I was homeless to get custody of Montana. Um, and that's just, regardless of whatever happens, as long as I can go to Montana's, to the cemetery, and I can say, hey, look, I fought to the very end. This is what they gave her, and there's nothing I can do about it. But I fought to the very end. Um that has been and will always be my intention. Um, you know, we we have a friend, Samantha Lankite, who has gone out of her way. She's contacted these news agencies, you know, the newspapers, and we've done all this stuff with help from close friends. But, you know, this is a very close community, regardless of, you know, 17,000, 18,000 people live here it's still fairly close. And, 
you know, when we when we initially had the the uh, the viewing, um, we uh, they kept saying, "Hey, you you got to have it at your church. You can't have it at the funeral home. There's not going to be enough room." Mm-hmm. And and I I just I didn't think that was going to be the case. But you know, when you have over eighteen hundred people show up to to a visitation, um, that that says a lot about. One, it says a lot about my child. It says a lot about my family, but it says a lot about our community, because there there were people that, um, that I, that I really didn't know, um, that had come in contact with Montana somehow. There was there was people that she had met uh, on trips. I mean, Montana was a twenty year old, well traveled young lady. She had been all over the place, and I was happy. And those are the things that I that helped me a lot of times get through the day, knowing that for a 20-year-old, she experienced quite a bit. But also on the flip side of that is knowing that she also experienced a lot of hurt, you know, with within her hurt with her mother and, and you know, stuff like that and, and the turmoil that she was facing on a daily basis within herself. Um, and, that, and as a parent watching that, that, that hurts. You know, but, you know, like I said, and, and I'll say it to anybody who asks, you know, I didn't grow up in Saxon, you know, and to see the outpouring of support and to see how many people came and to, and to still see that and to still have, you know, her graduating class writing letters to the prosecuting attorney and, you know, doing all the stuff that they're doing, I mean, Montana's life impacted and touched so many. You know, she was a funny, funny kid. She just was, and she had a big heart. Um, and you know, having to go through this trial and having to hear the the horrible things that took place, uh, not being there with my child when she took her last breath, not being able to hold her hand and tell her it was going to be okay. Those are the things that that haunt me and those are the things that cause me the most problems but as you mentioned you got a lot of friends and family that have been backing you up and been there for you and yep. you lean on and i know you do lean on them i do and um i really appreciate you coming on and, and talking with me and um you know love you and your family well, and, we, and we feel the same and um man we're just praying for you and and everything that happens and uh we'll try to keep people updated too uh, yeah. about what's going on and so feel free to get back with me anytime and if you need anything you know as as uh, i just said earlier i mean it's the only thing that we can say is if you need anything you just got to reach out and tell us i will and and when you said montana getting hit with a softball the, when we was in the car going home she did say she was like that did really hurt uh, <laughs> you know but you told me not to cry on the field and i was like uh yeah i i, I might not should have said no that crying but, in softball i'm like kid. but you know so it so, was yeah. i'm telling you man i was just like blown away like i i'm used to girls i mean it's not a girl then guys too. Guys get hit by baseballs and they whimper, cry a little bit. So it's, just, it's just you know it hurts. And, right. And she came off and you know, oh, and, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and I'm like, yeah. my ten years. Yeah, I'm fine, coach. I'm fine. I'm fine. And she and she played the rest of the game. So I was like, man, yeah. that girl's tough as nails. So yeah, yeah, yeah. loved so. her a lot. So anyway, Chris, thanks for being on the show. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Chris, unfortunately, had to experience every parent's nightmare and. 
I can't imagine, uh, none of us can, unless we've actually lost a child, to know what that feels like, what his family's gone through. And so I really appreciate Chris, again, coming on the show, being candid and open and so honest about things and uh, so much that we can learn from him and this experience. And uh, we just wish him well on the journey that is ahead for him and his family. Well, thanks for joining me on the Talk of Sykeston podcast. I'm Glenn Cantrell.